Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, welcome to this session, this, this Campus Life. And there's just a few formalities I'll go through before we get into conversation with these two extremely talented authors. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Ghana people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. I also pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge First Nations people as the original storytellers of this country. Um, of course, there's a, there are COVID rules now. Wouldn't feel like 2022 if we didn't have COVID rules. Um, I need to reinforce some key conditions of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing where possible. We strongly encourage the wearing of masks and, and ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. Um, we ask you to support our authors, all of those visiting Writers Week by purchasing books from the book tent and I'm throwing down a challenge to you all today. After this session or the next session, please go and buy five books from the book tent. <laughs> um, it's the best way to support authors, it's the best way to support Writers Week and you won't get a better selection of books than from imprints, so please support them as well. There'll of course be a book signing at the end of this session. Um, when you can um, have a chat and have a personally signed copy. I'm sure there are birthdays and Mother's Day coming up when it'll make the perfect gift. Our two authors for this session, Diana Reed and Indiana Schneider, welcome. Thank you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, Diana is a, um, on our, the far side in the pink shirt which matches the cover of her book, uh, I thought <laughs> elegantly, uh, is a recent University of Sydney graduate who began working in theatre in January 2020. Her plans to write and direct in Sydney and at the Edinburgh Festival changed, of course, because of COVID. The manuscript she began during the shutdown is her debut, Love and Virtue, which was last week named the winner of the fifth annual Mud Literary Prize for the best debut literary novel by an Australian writer. Congratulations. Thanks. Indiana Schneider in the middle is an opera singer and author. You don't hear that very often, actually, those two <laughs> things together. She grew up in Sydney before moving to England to study music and, at Oxford University, and she now sings opera and lives well, in Germany and uh, sings all over the world. How lucky Pre -COVID, is she? hopefully soon <laughs> again. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, the title of this session is This Campus Life. Um, your novels are about the transformative excitement of university life. Diana, your novel features explorations of feminism, sexuality, consent, and the precocious intellectualism of first year life on campus, as Joe Dyer has so beautifully described in the program. And Indiana, Indiana, yours weaves music, literature, art, dance, sex, and the exquisite pain and pleasure of first love set in Oxford. And what better recommendation do you need, I think? These are rich stories about a time in our lives that, for, for someone my age, seem to slip by so quickly. Um, and I, I wonder if you, you will discuss it, whether you already look back fondly at that time, even though it's much closer than my university life. Um, before we get into the themes of the book, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the pandemic and um, creative people in the audience will know. Um, everything had to pivot for most people in their normal lives and in their creative lives. Were you both closet novelists before the virus hit? 
too eager. I had written the first draft of my novel, very first draft, before the pandemic hit, but it was, I called it my project. Honestly, I had a really long commute uh, to a job in London and I was on the tube writing two hours a day and it was just a really like fun creative project. And then as the pandemic was taking off, then it was a thought of, huh, people are still reading. They're not going to the theater, but they are still reading. Let's see what I can, what I can do with this. Do you think there's a creative muscle that people have and you want to exercise it in a whole range of ways? You know, I, I wouldn't have said yes initially, but I was working a very dry job when I, when I wrote the novel and actually felt kind of, like, yeah, a bit tense. I sort of needed to let, yeah, stretch the creative muscle. So now I would say, yeah, I think so. I think there is, like, a yearning for it if you, yeah. How do you ride on the tube? Uh, I lived so far out of London that I always got a seat and, <laughs> uh, yeah, just a little laptop on the lap. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do people stare at you on the tube? I was really engrossed. Yeah, maybe. You know, people <laughs> tend to keep their eyes down in London. That's the rule. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what you might say on the tube. That's true. <laughs> um, and Diana, you obviously had to pivot too because theatre closed down around the world. Yeah, I wasn't... Um, yeah, I think working in theatre is quite generous. I would say attempting to work in theatre um, <laughs> when the pandemic hit. And then um, I, I wouldn't say I was a closet novelist. I have always been a really big reader and um, I'd sort of thought that I'd like to write a novel before I died, um, but I didn't have any like immediate plans to do so. And then when the pandemic hit and I didn't have anything else to do, I, yeah, I sort of thought I would attempt it um, just for something to do. And um, yeah, but I, yeah, now I would, uh, maybe I was a closet novelist, but I didn't know. Which, is the answer. <laughs> I think there might be a few people in the audience who have that dream to write a novel before they die. <laughs> Hands up. Yeah. We admire you. Keep at it. Um, did you type... So, did you have any expectations of being published? I suppose no author does really when you're writing your first book, but um, on, the, on the heels of um, Sally Rooney's success, were people whispering in your ear that there might be a chance for these books? Uh, I, I didn't have any expectation of being published at all. Um, I think that's because I hadn't really attempted, I guess, like creative writing in any form before um, writing this novel. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't write it expecting to be published. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, being published is such a, a stroke of good fortune that it would be very stressful if you, um, you know, if you sat down at a computer and thought, oh, this isn't worth it unless I get published, then that would probably make the whole exercise really painful. Um, so, yeah, I was thrilled to be published, but I definitely didn't, like, go to my work Word document being like, this will be in a bookstore one day. <laughs> Which is quite a freeing experience because you are writing yeah. creatively and what you want to write and really engaging in that way. I can definitely echo that. I think um, it was only, actually, I read a book that um, in at the Deep End by Kate Davies and that was actually how I found my agent as well through reading the acknowledgements of this book but I read this book that was really sexy and set in London and that was and, and it's um, a queer novel and looks at sort of young people just coming out of university and experiencing yeah all of all of those things and reading that was like actually this is this is something I really yeah want to want to do as well and it was very inspiring reading sesh so it does open the window to you doesn't it that you there, there are other books like that that I want to write there's a there's a space yeah. for them in the publishing world mm, yeah for sure yeah um 
I might just ask you to talk about what your books are about and the, the, your main characters and the, and the plot to give people in the audience an idea. So maybe Indiana, you want to go first? Sure, absolutely. So my book is set over four years and follows the relationship of two Australian expats who meet studying at Oxford University. Amalia, who's the narrator, is a first-year music student and Alex, uh, the initial friend interest, then maybe love interest, is a languages student in her third year when we meet them. So there's already this you know, in university that time is stretched so much, so somebody who's two years older than you is wiser and kind of interesting and alluring, and so we meet them as they meet drunk in a bar at university, as is the way to, to make friends at that time, TBD, and follow their relationship turned, yeah, maybe romance over these four years through their time at university and then on into life in London. And the book sort of looks at how do we tell the different types of love apart? You know, you feel something really strongly for somebody, but is it romantic? Is it sexual? Is it friendly? Is it familial? And then also what to do about that kind of love and how to do something about that kind of love in your early 20s or late teens when you're having to deal with a lot of other stuff and uh, especially in the context of the campus and at university with uh, heaps of academic pressure or, uh, you know, pressure to figure out who you are and your identity and there's that coming-of-age journey and... Yeah, so the book sort of takes these Australian women and takes them through Oxford, London, and then, you know, the places that they visit along the way, asking, what is love? What should it be? And how are you meant to hold on to it? Oh. Would you like to read for us? Sure. Um, yeah. This is page six, so it's the first sober meeting of the two um, main characters. And I think that's all the context I'll give for now. So... Tuesday arrived, and I attended the concert I'd told my Renaissance music tutor I'd attend. The chapel was magnificent, gothic and resonant, and the music hit me behind the knees. I was glad to be sitting, because music that hits you behind the knees can leave you unbalanced. Five singers stood in a row. The tallest, a man with a boy's face, sang the solos in a set of Renaissance music, and though his voice was soft and gentle and sweet, the chapel acoustics rubbed his sound warm, inflating it until it filled the ancient space. During a particular Gesualdo madrigal, a balloon of sound lodged itself inside me. I'd never heard music like it before. An ignorant first year, I'd assumed Renaissance music was too rule-abiding in its harmonies to achieve this intense emotional expression. How could they express such anguish in such simplicity? The ethereal introduction morphed into something breathless, wildly chromatic. Everything began to hasten, voices overlapping, faster. The balloon of sound burst. Shivers overwhelmed me, then left me raw. About halfway through the concert, I felt her sit beside me. It was the second time we'd met in all of time, and I was struck by how close she was sitting. Very close. The music faded from foreground to background. It was like a concerto where she was the soloist, the scraping of her chair, the shuffling of her feet, the rhythm of her breathing. She whispered to me, accompanied by the music, I smell of herbs and spices, I'm sorry. I laughed because she was funny, and she did smell strongly of coriander. I love coriander. We watched the rest of the concert together in silence. I say watched, but suddenly everyone was clapping, so I clapped too, because that's how clapping works. She was whispering to me again, oh, but I thought you would be singing. I contemplated making a joke, but couldn't follow through, because she really did look disappointed. She smiled when I said, Alex, I can't think of anything worse than someone seeing me perform before they get to know me. Way. <laughs> 
And those two characters do get to know each other. Oh, yeah. The, that, that is the, follows their four years at university. Yeah, yeah. intimately. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Spoiler. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Diana, would you like to tell us about Love and Virtue? Yes, sure. So Love and Virtue is also a campus novel. It's set in Sydney and it looks at sex, power and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women in their first year at university. And yeah. give us a reading. Um, so I'm going to read from the start of chapter one. It's always good to start at the beginning. Um, okay. Although it has been years since Eve and I were friends, I despair that I will ever shake her. This is because she has been selfish enough to take up a place, however minor, in public life. No matter how exhaustively I block her on social media and distance myself from her friends and avoid talking about her with mine, she refuses to live malleably in my memory. Instead, she crops up in bookshop windows, on the explore function on my Instagram, profiled for the weekend paper. In photos, she looks radiantly intelligent. It's her cheekbones, as I always told her, high, prominent cheekbones that assert themselves like convictions. In these photos, the kinds of photos that also appear on the jackets of her books, her face is engaged and alert, but basically passive, like the, like the photographer caught her when she was not quite thinking, just letting clever ideas rest in her brain. Whenever I say I was at university with Eve, people ask me what she was like, skeptical, perhaps, that she could have always been as whole and self-assured as she now appears, to which I say something like, people are infinitely complex. But I say it in such a way, so pregnant with misanthropy, that it's obvious I hate her. <laughs> it's a big claim, I know, to hate a person. What would Eve say? She'd be methodical, as always, starting with the universal and then moving to the particular. She'd ask, what does it mean to hate? I hear her voice in my head, bouncing the idea around. I can't hate someone unless I know them intimately, she tells me. Hate is very personal. It requires care. A thought experiment. Eve, angular face and pliant hair, crosses a road. I choose a place I know to make it as vivid as possible. The road is King Street, Newtown. Eve crosses where there's no intersection, talking to me over her shoulder as she goes. Looking at me, she doesn't see the oncoming traffic. With a thud so flat it sounds fake, she rolls up onto a car's windscreen. To my surprise, the windscreen doesn't shatter. The car, braking on impact, swerves, and the passenger side hits a street lamp. Eve rolls, limp, back onto the bitumen. I imagine this taking place in summer, so the bitumen is hot and the smoke from the car feels like it emanates from the earth. There's crunchy glass everywhere, and as I approach, I see it smattered across her pale chest like breadcrumbs. How do I feel when I see her face, that equilateral triangle of nose and chin and cheekbones, blood-specked and ravaged? How does that make me feel? Amid the heat and the rubbery smoke and the sirens, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't feel the tiniest flash of glee that I still feel so much, that her suffering thrills me and her success cruels me, that I cannot just get over it, but insist instead on resenting her. It all suggests to me that in spite of everything, I'm still a little bit in love with her. I think if you're a publisher and that manuscript landed on your desk and that was the first couple of pages, you'd, you'd publish that book too, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> Thank it's you. incredible. And it does set up this, in, in a sense, a love-hate relationship between these two women, or love, mm. 
Yes, it's a complicated relationship. I thought I it's an interesting parallel to the main relationship in your book, Indiana, because, um, yeah, I feel like it's also a very intense kind of character-defining friendship, except in my book it's very toxic. <laughs> they, um, these two women kind of always want to make themselves better by, by besting the other, so their success kind of depends on the other one falling, whereas um, I think the relationship in your book is much more, um, I don't know, it's, it's less toxic. <laughs> yeah, definitely gets more toxic towards the end. I think it's really interesting also looking at, yeah, the, the way that these, these friendships and whether they turn into romances or not at university really shape you. You're like this clay and university's this oven and then other bits of clay are latching onto you and you're sort of hardening as the, as the years yeah. progress. And, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I speak to my own experiences, but the, at university you find your tribe in a sense, so maybe for the first time that you find people are interested in the things that you're interested in and it's kind of a blossoming, isn't it? That you, mm -hmm. you feel you can be yourself for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that comes with risks. Mm. One of the things I found interesting, actually, again, looking at the two novels, is that the protagonists both um, come from somewhere else that the university is not. So Michaela is from Canberra but studies in Sydney and Amalia is from Sydney but studies in the UK. And I think there is a sense of a very like fluid identity, um, even more so in that, in that context. And it's really interesting in your novel when you juxtapose Michaela with all of these Sydney-siders who their childhoods kind of bleed into their university experience, so they are like semi-formed. And then Michaela's in contrast, whereas somewhere like the UK, um, most people go elsewhere to study, and so you have all of these, um, you know, like loose identity people, and I think both are very, like, yeah, they're really interesting ways to explore identity throughout university through friendship and otherwise. Yeah. And it's a chance to experiment, isn't it? With, mm. uh, yeah, experiment with what fits. Yeah, and I think that's something that um, another thing I look at in my book is not only the kind of friendships that to really define you, but also that experience of like making the wrong friends. And um, I, I think, uh, and how um, the, I suppose my narrator's kind of shapes her personality in a lot of ways in contrast to the people who she maybe initially admires and then she later realises that her character is defined by all the ways that she's unlike these people rather than all the ways that she sort of wants to be them. Mm. It struck me about both of your uh, main characters that they are the other, mm. even though they are, um, you might say, privileged young women with advantages. I mean, you know, your character goes to the UK and your character moves cities and... Um, they, do, they don't feel part of that milieu either. Um, was that fish out of water a, um, a, a planned thing for both of you? Oh, you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah, for me it was planned, and I think largely that's like, it's like a very useful novelistic trick because, um, the, you know, any time you read a book as the reader, you are the other to this world that the author's like trying to create for you. So if the narrator is also an other, then it's a, a really good way to introduce the audience to to this world because you learn about it at the same time as the narrator learns about it. Um, and, you know, obviously so many great first-person narrators in history are other, like The Great Gatsby is probably the paradigmatic example of that. Um, so, yeah, I think for me it was probably a, a primarily an artistic choice um, and it was one of, the, like, an early choice I made. But there's just enough in your character so they do fit in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, she's not, um, yeah, she's sort of, she's, she's not so foreign that she's not able to, um, to understand the world really quickly and to adapt, um, but she has, I guess, an outsider's clarity of perspective, um, and she observes things that maybe people who are 
have grown up in this world take for granted and don't notice. Yeah, it's a really great device for critiquing as well and being hyper aware of your surroundings in a way that you're not if you're in a place that you recognize. And so looking at like power and consent in, in, that, in that environment and privilege and uh, is, is super impactful and really interesting. Um, and I was really interested in exploring sort of expat life, um, especially in a university setting and how alienating that can be. And something that I actually noticed studying abroad was how many people ended up befriending or dating someone from this place that they're from. And so the two Australian characters, you know, they sort of go on this journey together as well. And you have this sort of contrast of otherness with connection. And um, it's a really fun theme to play with and a great device. Well, Indiana, your character goes to Oxford to study, as you did in real life. Um, that's there's, a, there's two senses of other there for me. One is the character's an Australian, the other one is it going to this institution with a thousand years, mm. correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, of history. Um, and how did you find that as Personally, an Australian? Yeah. yeah, I mean, really weird. Uh, yeah, I think one of the things that was, was really interesting and that I did try and sort of perme like permeate through the novel was this idea of kind of not really having a shared language or a shared educational experience. Um, the things I'd learned at school weren't the things that most of my peers had learned and you can feel really ignorant um, as opposed to just that you've had a different education through that and that's, that can be quite difficult, I think. And then, yeah, equally, um, just like the, the trees look different, right? And like all of the slogans and the chains, it's been so nice being back in Australia and feeling like things are recognizable in a way. And yeah, I think, it, I think you do add richness and texture to a character in, in that environment and exploring. And like, yeah, like I said, like allowing this critique. And I probably wasn't critical enough of the environment when I was there, but being able to look back with a few years at least of perspective, I think, uh, yeah, really allow, I allowed, I gave the character more insight than I had, which, you know, is allowed. <laughs> you, um, you say, your character says, I knew nothing about philosophy. I didn't do interesting things to experiment with theories of power. Scratching these insecurities aggravated others, and soon I was also feeling sexually naive. So I thought that was... <laughs> what a, a spiral. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great line about, you know, you, you can pretend to... You can put on a skin, but it still might not fit. Mm, yeah, and I think it's really interesting as well when you have um, a character with a whole bunch of other characters and seeing how they interact and then also the thoughts that they have when they're on their own, which is why first-person narration is just such a great way to get into, mm. into that contrast. And there's a, there's a scene in the novel where um, Amalia is in a very fancy dining hall with all of these brilliant scholars and they're all discussing whether people should use empathy um, as a tool for moral decision-making, you know, that classic dinner-time conversation. And she has no idea. And she goes to the bathroom and calls her mum and is like, should people use empathy as a tool for moral decision-making? Exploring that private versus public uh, viewpoint as well was, is also really interesting and, yeah. But then she goes back and like her owns it. Yeah, owns it, yeah. <laughs> her mum knows. <laughs> um, Joanna, you wrote in Love and Virtue. Um, I savoured the moment like it was already a memory. I saw myself as a worthy subject for a film with an indie soundtrack. <laughs> I just liked that line. I thought you might all too. Uh, I wanted to appear nonchalant and easygoing, which meant packing as little as possible so I might appear to be above possessions, like materialism was just something that happened to other people. <laughs> Such a great line. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so um, your uh, character is a, um, living in a residence um, at, at a university. Um, tell us a little about, about that um, part of her life. Yeah, so um, one of the things that I wanted to explore in Love and Virtue is, um, is, is morals, um, which is 
a big theme, um, and I wanted to explore the way that our, our morals and our sense of right and wrong are shaped by our social environment. And so a um, residential college at a university is a great way to demonstrate that because it is a very closed social environment. So you live on top of people and you, you, you study and you um, sleep in the same place as, or sometimes with, um, people <laughs> who all um, live right next to you. And I think that, um, and the institution that I chose to write about was a, um, I guess, a fictionalised version of the residential college system that we have in Australia, where um, these institutions have um, existed for decades, um, and a lot of them have their own kind of history and their own cultures. And I think that those kind of um, closed institutions can create environments where things seem normal there that might not seem normal outside their walls. Um, so yeah, I think that's what the, the sort of space of college is doing in the novel. It's demonstrating how, um, yeah, how your, your sense of right and wrong is shaped by the institutions that you interact with. And um, there's, an, there's an incident in the book, for example, which is um, perceived as very morally wrong by one particular group of people and then as sort of not so morally wrong by another. Um, so yeah, I think... Um, yeah, it was college was like meant to demonstrate a um, a kind of pressure cooker environment where people are kind of encouraged to all think the same way. And um, we were discussing in the green room, and you mentioned that the kind of high school mentality bleeds over into that kind of university life. So, uh, especially among the the, the male students, do, mm. do they just not grow up? <laughs> Well, I suppose there's a risk of that. I think, um, there's, yeah, there's sort of like an argument that happens towards the end of the book where um, they're saying, um, the narrator sort of says, well, if you, if, you go to, if you go to a high school in... If you go to high school with a certain group of people and then you go to university with those group of people and then presumably you go on to work with them, then, at, like, at what point in your life do your ideas get challenged? Um, and I think that that is something that is... Um, that the book kind of deals with because university is sort of traditionally meant to be a time where people kind of break out of whatever bubble they've grown up in and they meet people from different backgrounds and they and that, that can be what's so fantastic about university is that you have this kind of horizon widening experience. And I do think that for people who for whom their education is filtered via a series of very narrow institutions, you can kind of miss out on that experience a bit of... Um, of being challenged or, yeah, of, or of encountering ideas and people who are, like, very different from what you've grown up with. There's a, there's a brilliant book by um, Brandon Taylor called Real Life, mm -hmm. and I just, I, it's a campus novel, and I just love the fact that it's called Real Life, because he's definitely taking the mick, and there's something <laughs> yeah. about university that is so detached from the inverted commas real world, and yeah, I think, I think that's such a great conversation in that book, because it really does show that this life is not going to be sustainable, and then what then happens as, as mm. adulthood approaches at alarming speed. But, but some people do go from that bubble of school to university to work with that same privilege and well, that's Yeah, same. I think that's the alarming thing is that for some people it, it is sustainable yeah. <laughs> for their whole life. Fake and um, and, and that's also, you know, that can be that can also be a, a really great thing. And um, you know, there are a lot of like privileges that come with that and a lot of um, really formative friendships and um, yeah, so I suppose I'm not um, yeah, I'm not trying to knock the, the, all of the benefits that come from those kind of um, institutions. But yeah, I guess it's just worth thinking about 
um, not only what you gain from them, but also what you might be missing out on? Um, the university sector has changed a lot since some of us were at university. Um, a friend, an academic friend of mine describes it as a degree sausage factory now, and the academics certainly feel that pressure. I wondered, uh, and that's a theme for, for me, for both of you in the book, is the academic pressure that your um, characters feel. And I wondered if you wanted to comment on the way universities have changed and what pressure that puts on students now, and does that make that success harder? I can't really comment on the change, have, um, because I, I didn't, yeah, but I, I do think that there is something true in the sausage factory, and I think um, you'd, we were chatting actually earlier about how much overlap there is um, in our novels, which are completely different and, and have, you know, set, a, set in different places and explore different issues, but there are, there are so many universal, university experiences, or at least, yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, both of our novels have scenes where characters are talking to professors one-on-one -on -one and the professor is saying like this is how to get a good mark or like do this thing or read this thing and there is something very factory-like about that and it's and it's interesting that that happened I found in both in both novels. Mm. Yeah I think um I, I do think that maybe and I, I went to the University of Sydney which is obviously a huge university and I do think there's something about just the, the sheer scale and, and the number of degrees and the number of people going through universities now that mean that it's um I think um, perhaps a more depersonalized experience like it's sort of like um, yeah, like it's like a degree factory rather than um, a place where people might have a genuine connection with their teachers. So yeah, like this book is a work of fiction, but the most like outlandishly fictional element is that the main character has an affair with her professor. Um, because when I was at the University of Sydney, you like couldn't get alone in a room with a professor, <laughs> like let alone have the opportunity to flirt with them. Like, you know, you're in a lecture with like 400 people, they wouldn't know your name. Um, yeah, so which, you know, maybe that is a good thing um, if it leads to le less um, <laughs> like morally serious affairs. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, maybe there's a, a happy medium there where you can have small class sizes and also not abuses of power. <laughs> the future, everybody. <laughs> yeah. um, last week I saw a tweet by the Melbourne writer Sean Pryor and it, it, I, I wrote it down because I thought it was really relevant to, to today's discussion. She's um, my generation, let's just say, young. Um, she wrote, um, my generation had free education, the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid, affordable housing and action to save the ozone layer. Young people today get hex fees, a pandemic, a war in Ukraine, insane house prices and a climate crisis. And I thought that really wasn't fair. <laughs> there was a sense of hope maybe a generation ago, and I wondered if you wanted to talk about that. So you, there's a pressure of university, it's not real life, but actually maybe it is more like real life than we think. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think that maybe, um, yeah, I sort, of, I, I sort of feel I'm not gonna like bemoan the opportunities that my generation has been given. And I also feel like if you cherry pick the worst things from history, you could like say that of any generation, you know? Um, like, yeah, you could sort of say, um, yeah. So I, I sort of think that I, I wouldn't say that, um, our, I, I don't feel qualified to comment on whether our generation has like more historic kind of scale challenges than others. But I do think, um, I do think one thing that I've noticed as a trend in, um, I guess, in this genre, so in campus novels or coming-of-age novels by people our age, is there is this sense of kind of disaffection and um, 
there's a lot of irony deployed, and I think there's this kind of sense that characters struggle to like take their their own lives seriously. Um, like they're sort of afraid of. Um, yeah, like, they're afraid of being criticised, so they always try to get ahead of criticism by being really self-mocking. And I think that's something that is an element in these books. Um, and I think that maybe that's sort of born of the internet? I don't know. That's, a, that's such a broad kind of hypothesis. But I do think there's something about um, seeing all these novels coming from a generation of people who've grown up online. I think we are particularly conscious of curating our, our sense of self and of our personal brand... And I think that maybe that's reflected in the tone of these books. Absolutely. And definitely also the way we communicate and how mm -hmm. we have different languages for different social medias and yeah. different yeah, party settings and emails and letters. And yeah, I think it's definitely... I think, you know, I've been chatting to my little cousin recently because I've been in Australia. It's been really nice. He's <laughs> 17. And we've been chatting a lot about how COVID has impacted uh, young people and development and this real sense of isolation. And um, I think maybe it's a little bit too soon now, but it'll be really interesting to hear campus novels set during that time and just the weight of it, because I think that is kind of unprecedented, or at, like, at least in, you know, um, in, in novel settings um, and in literature, this idea of trying to be in this like hyper-socialized environment where you are drinking and sleeping with and next to all of these people, <laughs> but you're also like not allowed to share airspace. And yeah, I, I'm really curious to see the kind of literature that blossoms, you know, or like... <laughs> maybe the wrong imagery, but um, that comes out of, out of this time. You mentioned drinking then, and um, what struck me in both your books is the amount of drinking that young, your characters do. Whereas we're told that the younger generation has stopped drinking as much. It's only yeah, I've old... never heard that. When you said that in the green room, that shocked me, I must say. <laughs> it would shock my 17-year-old cousin, I think, as well. <laughs> well, uh, I think COVID's contributed to maybe a bit more alcohol consumption than usual. Yeah, but... if you close all the pubs, they don't drink. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is it, is it a... So, for, it struck me your characters use it as a social lubricant, and it relates to that sense of the other, that a whole lot of young people come together, don't know each other, alcohol becomes that common bond. I think mm -hmm. drinking can definitely also grant permission to behave in a way. And we were chatting earlier about trying on different identities. And, yeah, like using it as a social lubricant in the sort of action sense, but also people know you've been drinking and you kind of, you know, have permission in certain contexts to be a bit more, like, outlandish or mm -hmm. funny or... Um, and that's really interesting, again, in this novel where people are trying to be somebody and trying to figure out what morality is and how to be a good person and throwing alcohol into that mix. You know, I spoke about the clay figurines earlier. They, like, mm. melt and have to <laughs> reform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot of... I think there's a sense that alcohol is really important, as you say, as a social lubricant, and also um, I think it's just sort of, like, youthful risk-taking. And um, I think there's... Because a lot of the characters in my book, for example, are 18, so, they've, you know, it's their first time unsupervised... And I think that um, they, they just, like, go a bit mad and they have to, like, work out what their limits are. Um, and I think that there's, there's interesting questions to be asked about how you moderate that and how, you know, you can create safe environments for people to test their limits in ways that, don't, that aren't, like, very damaging. Um, and I think that w when you combine, combine excessive drinking with peer pressure, so you get people kind of drinking for the wrong reasons, um, that can be, a, yeah, a, quite a damaging thing. Um, you mentioned it before, Indiana, about um, the different kinds of love one can feel. 
um, whether it's romantic, um, friendship, sexual love, lust. Um, your character, uh, Amalia, is also navigating her, um, awakening her first queer experiences. Um, do you want to talk a little about that, that journey for her? Yeah, absolutely. So we meet Amalia when she thinks she's straight, <laughs> as many people begin with, uh, because of the world that we live in today. And, and it's, it's interesting exploring sexuality through female friendship, because I think a lot of, or um, yeah, I'll speak for female friendship, a lot of sexual awakenings, if you like, come through friendship and then looking at the way that we navigate friendship to romance um, in both heterosexual and queer ways. But I think in queer ways, it's often the romance comes as a surprise in the way because of, because of the people, we live in a very heterosexual or normalized world. And uh, yeah, one of, one of the things I really wanted to look at was like the contracts that we write with people as, as friends. So, uh, you know, you've got the friends that, you, that call you once a week and if they called you every day, it'd be a bit weird. And if they called you once a month, you'd think there was something wrong. And we do write these contracts with people and we set up a set of expectations. And then when we write it, we, when we change a relationship into something new, we need to like write a new contract, but we often don't. And that is how I really wanted the relationship between these two characters. I'm not, there's no spoilers. First line of the book is they don't end up together. So, <laughs> but you know, you watch this relationship disintegrate when expectations aren't met. And I think also both of these characters have never had queer relationships before. And that added pressure and trying to figure out how to be and how to exist in the LGBT plus community is um, another sort of factor. And we were talking, you mentioned universities as pressure cookers. I do think that like, it's really interesting looking at friendship and at romance when all of these external factors are sort of really putting the pressure on and how things crumble. And Joanna, I think your character is, you know, the, your reading revealed that kind of absolute visceral hate <laughs> your character has for Eve. Eve. Yeah. Um, and then she thinks she's slightly still in love with and her. Can you talk Eve. about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about that relationship? It struck me that there's always the most popular girl in the room, um, and Eve was that person for me. Yeah. Um, so I think I think there probably is, I guess, a kind of queer element with Michaela and Eve's friendship, and I think that they they struggle in a very different way with the same question that Indiana's talking about, which is, you know, is it friendship or is it love? And I think that in their case, it gets, like, distorted into... It, it never blossoms into love, and um, instead they kind of direct that passion that might have, you know, perhaps been sexual into just competing with each other quite viciously. Um, and they also... Um, I think that one thing that happens is they use male attention, or the narrator uses male attention as like a, a kind of conduit to enact this relationship with Eve. So, she, for example, she tries to, um, like, she pursues men who she thinks Eve would be impressed by. So it's almost like the men are only ever a medium through which to ultimately court Eve. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that... It's and, and maybe that's a product of being in a, a more heteronormative environment or that they don't feel like there's a, a space for that love to be expressed another way. Um, I also think that there's an element with their friendship of um, Michaela's a bit younger than Eve and I think that she kind of, when she first meets her, she puts her on a pedestal and I think that a lot of a lot of readers and a lot of women can kind of relate to that sense of finding another woman when you're very young who, who seems like the kind of woman you want to be and then you you really like latch on to them and um, it doesn't you know it doesn't always end well um, so yeah I think their relationship is in a, is a product of 
mutual admiration, um, but also in a lot of ways, kind of an immaturity on the part of the narrator. Um, what do you say to the, and I think women get this more than men who write, that you've written yourselves. Have you had that pointed out to you by helpful reviewers or others? I definitely have, but I didn't really shy away from the fact that I share um, uh, autobiographical details with the protagonist. Um, it's, it's a fictional story, but I, I sort of, the reason that I stuck to it, you know, I could have been like a violin player from New Zealand and maybe, you know, I'd never get asked that question. But I really wanted to look at what it's like to be like a young um, opera singer and, and a, a young artist in a world that is like, with, like under this capitalist framework where like it's, you really struggle to engage with that. And the, the book follows this person through four years and into a job that she ultimately does not want to be doing. And um, yeah, so, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, um, yeah the, I, I do get asked it a fair bit, um, and I think the question used to irritate me because I think I used to, th I used to think that there was an implication there that there was less craft. Like, um, I think people thought that I was just sort of transposing my life experiences into a word document, and I was like, no, I'm like capable of making things up. <laughs> like, um, but I think then I sort of thought about it from my perspective as a reader, and I think that when when I, I know that when I connect with a book. It, I think that sometimes the experience of reading something fictional is so sort of resonant that it feels true, and I think that sometimes readers like want that connection that they felt as real to actually in fact be real, and I think that sometimes that's the spirit in which it's asked is like, you know, this happened to me, did it really happen to you too? Um, and I think that that's actually like a really lovely thing. Um, so yeah, so now I like that question. Um, <laughs> but the answer is, yeah, it is a work of fiction and I share like some but not many biographical details with my narrator. So for example, I'm not from Canberra. Both my parents are alive. Um, yeah, lots of, yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting, oh, sorry. No, no, please go It's ahead. interesting seeing a lot of debut novelists actually as well, kind of sharing, sharing, um, yeah, like character details or like university situations with their characters. Because I think when you're like writing your first novel, you want to explore themes that are close to your heart. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, you were chatting earlier about the sense of detachment um, in, in a lot of modern like contemporary fiction and the sense of like irony. And um, I personally was really interested in writing a book that like wanted, like the character really wanted to be that, but was so full of, and I think this is, this is, the, this is the sense, is so full of emotion, especially at that age, and everything is so heartfelt. And for me, for a first novel, that felt much more accessible, accessing a world that I knew and exploring mm -hmm. issues that were, although fictional, like very close to my heart, like being an Australian abroad or being queer or the arts, like I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. before my train of thought crashed. <laughs> um, but it is about, um sharing an experience that you've had mm. and, then, and then taking it as the basis, which is what all novelists do, I think. There's bits of, there's bits of the author in every situation and every character, I think, even. They might not want to admit it. Do, sure. you, do you look back on your, eight, like the, your characters are 18, do you feel way older than them now, both, what, 25? <laughs> Are you I'm both 26. 20, oh, 26. Sorry. Sorry. So even, oh, sorry, 26. We're yeah. even older than the characters. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I do feel a lot older. And I think, um, yeah, in the... Um, so my book's set over basically the course of the year and the narrator's 18. And a lot of sort of awful things happened to her over the course of that year, which um, needed to happen for the plot. But uh, <laughs> at the end of the book, uh, I remember when I was editing it, I did think, oh, my gosh, this poor woman. Um, she's, she's been through it. Um, and, yeah, I think that maybe... Part of um, 
going to, you know, part of the sort of accelerated growth that happens in those first years when you leave school is that I think there is a big difference between being 18 and even just being 21. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, the characters in my book are, um, you know, they start the book as children. And then by the end of the book, even though only a year has passed, they are like quite a bit further on that road to being adults. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you definitely get a sense of that. I think if you look at the beginning of your novel and the end, like they are really different, not the end, end but they're, they're very different people. Um, I was interested in doing actually a similar thing, sort of following these characters through four years. You know, when you like see someone every day, you don't notice that they change. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the photos of, you know, four years ago and suddenly it's like, oh my God. Um, and I kind of wanted a reader to have a similar experience of following characters through this time and sort of noticing very subtle changes and then kind of being left with these like very different people. And I think being in your like mid-20s when you're writing about this sort of stuff is kind of allows you access to a sense of like immediacy because it's not that far away. Mm -hmm. And then also obviously a sense of distance. And I think um, that can make for really um, interesting storytelling, this, this sense of like, I can really get into that headspace because, you know, it's not nostalgia yet. And at the same time, like, okay, how can I craft a story in that space and what are the important themes of that time of life? Mm -hmm. uh, we are going to take questions. Um, if, if people have any questions, there's a mic in the centre of the aisle. At this point, I would also like to mention our Auslan interpreters, Chelsea and Jade. Thank you very much. <laughs> Round of applause. They're the hardest working people in showbiz, I reckon. Um, what has the attention been like for both of you? The debut novelists, lauded, flown all over the world to talk about your book. What's that been like for you both? I actually live in Germany and the book's not out there yet, so normal everyday life, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> it's been so, so wonderful getting to meet all of the booksellers throughout Sydney and Melbourne and here in Adelaide a little bit and being able to actually chat with them and um, about the novel. So it's only really in the last two weeks that the excitement and of that has really hit. Um, so I'm so grateful to be here, I have to have yeah, had that opportunity. Um, so not, not super, over I mean, these last two weeks have been wonderful. Um, but I haven't, hasn't, yeah, my life's not changed. Um, is it out in the UK? It is, yeah, it sort of came out, it's a UK, um, yeah, so it came oh, out so in the UK. Sorry, it's, um, uh, it's been published already in the UK. Exactly. So this is, publication has followed the UK. Yeah, and I went to the UK the week that it came out, but sadly that was like the, one of three weeks that have been shut down in the last six months. So I went for some, a really nice dinner with a friend and we like pointed to it in a bookshop. <laughs> and <laughs> I managed to meet a few people, um, really sweet booksellers there, but yeah, I'll, I'll be back. <laughs> And Diana, what about you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's funny, like we were both saying before, we didn't expect to be published. So obviously, you know, see, the, the fact that anyone other than like my mother has read, read it is amazing. Um, Shout out to mum who's in the audience oh, yeah, where today. <laughs> where is she? Uh -huh. There she is. Hello. I promised, I promised to embarrass you. I'm sorry. Um, I told her not to. Um, <laughs> she really said, please don't. <laughs> but yeah, like, I guess regarding the attention, like, it's, it's, Obviously, such a huge honour, but um, I guess it's kind of what Indiana was saying, like, any novelist is not going to be as famous as, like, someone who sells skincare on TikTok. So, you know, it's like, <laughs> you, can, you can live your normal life. It's fine. <laughs> we'll go to questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for a great session. Um, my question's to Diana. I was really struck by the fact that your protagonist, as you say, she has dreadful experiences and they're around issues of consent and rape and et cetera. But ultimately, those issues are brought to light by the betrayal of another woman. Mm. 
And that really intrigued me because I sort of thought, where is the sisterhood now, you know? And is was that your, ex in it, not your experience, if you know what I mean, but in this generation that's bringing these very important issues to light, um, is it at the expense of other women still? And I just wondered about your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Um, that's such a good question. And it, it was definitely a concern of mine when I, when I wrote it. Um, I remember when I when I had my first, like, meeting with an agent, I said, oh, so you don't think I've killed feminism? Um, like, I was very... Yeah, I was concerned that the, you know, one of the... It's a book about sex and consent, and one of the most kind of morally egregious acts in the book is enacted by a woman um, to another woman. And I think that, um, yeah, I suppose I wasn't... Um, I suppose I wasn't so much trying to make a comment about women in particular. I think I was more trying to make a comment about um, moral performativity and how um, we do live in a time where there's a lot of, you know, virtue signalling and on the one hand that's that can be a really wonderful thing because, you know, I would obviously rather live in a world where people care about these issues and talk about them and if you can get social capital by talking about them, you know, like if it's cool to care, then that's a great thing. But then I think, on the other hand, um, it's worth exploring the limitations of that and I think um, what I really wanted to do was just explore the idea that if someone does an objectively... or not object, If someone does something that benefits lots and lots of people but they do it for the wrong reasons. So, for example, they go about it by betraying a friend. Does that make it a morally worse act? Um, and that's, like, a very big philosophical question that people have been asking for hundred of, hundreds of years, and I certainly don't know the answer to it. Um, so I wasn't... Yeah, I definitely wasn't trying to um, make a comment on... Or, or make a negative comment about contemporary feminism. I guess what I was trying to do was look at how these very old and very um, pressing philosophical questions can apply in a contemporary context and how they can even apply within movements that we normally don't criticise. Sorry, I didn't really answer your question. I don't know, but no, thank no, you. you okay. <laughs> thank you. Great question. Wish I'd thought of it. Um, next question. Hello, that was lovely. Thank you. My questions to all three of you. I was really struck by the introduction to the session that talked about how novels set in university campuses have almost no presence in Australian literature compared to UK and US. I just wondered if you had any insight into why that's so. I don't have any insight into why that's so. I'm, I'm really glad, like, I, I was actually so pleased when I read your book and that our books came out at a similar time because of this idea. Like, they're very different novels, one obviously set in Australia, one about Australians abroad, but they hopefully, like, have opened this question of Australian university experiences or, you know, the experiences of Australians at university. And I'd be well up for reading all the other... <laughs> Yeah, in the genre. it's such a good question and it's a question that I was asking as a reader because, you know, some of my favourite books are campus novels. Like, I'm obviously a huge fan of Sally Rooney and Donna Tartt and um, I, it, it's, you know, one of the, that was actually one of the reasons I wanted to write Love and Virtue was because, yeah, I, I agree. I was like, where is that book? You know, Australians go to university as well and it's such an established genre in other countries. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know... That, I, I don't know the answer to that question, and I, yeah, I remain baffled. <laughs> my, my two cents worth, I think that Sally Rooney, certainly publishing can be very trend-oriented, so one hits, one book hits, and then people go, oh, 
what else is there in that space that readers are obviously responding to? And I think um, it opens the door for new writers. And I think this is um, this is what's happened. And I mean, you people want novels to, to reflect their lives too. And that's I think what you've both done so successfully. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I um, haven't read Indiana's book, but I will after this session. Oh, you. you. <laughs> um, Thank you. And by the way, she'll be signing copies, as will Diana, over at the table. You can buy one. The <laughs> Diana, um, I was at Sydney University in the 70s, and I think you have captured it so well, and it is ex extraordinary to me that 50 years on, it is still so familiar from your book. I think you've got a beautiful voice, Thank and you, you really need to keep writing. Um, I'm interested, I was interested in the theme about betrayal as well, but I don't want to talk about that. I'm more interested in why you called it Love and Virtue, um, and really, you know, how you grappled with that title. Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, the, the answer is that I, I, I don't think titles are my, my strong suit, and um, I'd, finished the, I, I'd finished the book, and it was just called Draft, all caps, on my desktop. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent it to a friend to read. He was the first person who'd ever read it. And I thought, oh, you know, if I'm going to ask him to read this long document, I should do him the courtesy of giving it a title. So I um, just wrote a list of all of the themes. And I picked two of them. And I, and I put an ampersand in the middle. Um, and that was Love and Virtue. Um, but, and I, initially I didn't like... When, it's, when it sold to my publisher, I said, we've got to change the title. And um, they convinced me that that it was fine. So yeah, I've I've had I've come round to it and now I like it. But um, I suppose the the kind of more technical answer of why I picked those two themes is because um, well virtue is important because it goes to virtue signaling which I was talking about before and it also goes to virtue ethics which is um, like a a moral theory that um, being good is not a matter of um, it, it, so it's sort of in opposition to utilitarianism. So it's like being good is not about um, benefiting the, the maximum number, doing the most good for the most number of people. Being good is a question of character. So it's about your motivations. And, um, it, and it can also be a question of, I suppose, how you treat people in your immediate life. Um, and so that's why, yeah, that's why I wanted to use the word virtue because I thought it kind of covered off on some of those big themes in the book. Um, and then love is... Um, yeah, I don't know, that's also a theme. <laughs> I think you should do this for all of your future books. Like, the next one's called, like, Empathy and Jealousy. Yeah. And then, like, I think someone may have done on Sense the... and Sensibility yeah, and Pride yeah. and Prejudice. It's what it says on the tin, you know? Yeah, exactly, it's what it says oh, on the packet. That's right. Yeah. Um, my question is to both of you, uh, what's next? I've actually just finished a draft for a second novel. Okay. And uh, That's huge. Sent congratulations. It. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun actually. I love writing. It's, yeah. We were chatting about that earlier. It's so nice to be able to do this. Um, and I don't know why I've done this. The first book I said is set over four years. This next book is set over three days. <laughs> we like to learn on the go, uh, and uh, it's set in Vienna, and again looks at like a complicated love um, through the eyes of someone in their late twenties. Okay. Now, you, you're are you heading back to where? I'm heading back to Germany at 10:20 tonight, and I have a sort of other career as an opera singer, and I am going straight from the airport to a rehearsal room and probably collapsing. <laughs> 
And um, I'm not going to ask Indiana to belt out a tune here, but um, if you're at all curious about the kind of voice that comes out of Indiana Schneider, please Google her, as I did. Please don't. And, no, no, I was absolutely, absolutely gobsmacked. Opera has big voices, as we were saying earlier, and um, she is incredible. Um, Diana, what about you? What's next? Um, yeah, I don't have a career as an opera singer. I could probably get a viable career out of getting people to pay me not to sing. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I've finished a, a, in a similar position, but without the other very impressive career. I've finished a draft for a, for a second novel um, with my publisher, Ultimo Press. Yeah. Any hint? Um, it's, uh, it's in the same sort of broad genre, so it's not set on a campus, but it's contemporary fiction set in um, Sydney about young people. That's all, that's all I'm going to give you. <laughs> I haven't been media trained yet. Okay. <laughs> and now the title... I do know the title. <laughs> you, you it's for, it's for me to know and you find okay, out. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. And when will that be on shelves? Um, uh, I'm not. We're, I'm not sure. Okay. And Indiana, do you know a release date for yours? Yeah, we said 2023, and okay. it, that might happen. It also might be 2024. <laughs> <laughs> These things, there are long lead times in, in yeah. publishing, as people might not know, that um, like a book can be submitted up at least a year before publication. Um, and then slot it into the best time commercially when it's when you know when it would suit. So, um, look, congratulations to both of you. I'm so incredibly impressed. Thank you so much with Thank your you so books much. and you. your intelligence and your um, determination. Really, um, please go and buy their books. Indiana and Diana will be signing over there. And I meant what I said. Five books each. <laughs> Okay. Um, Checked on the door. Uh -huh. Please uh, thank Indiana Schneider and Diana Reed. Thank you. Thank you very much.